0: As you're taking your seats, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts chapter 8. The story of Easter is the story of God's divine rescue mission. It is the story of God's great redeeming love. And as I mentioned in the prayer there, what we celebrate on Easter is that Jesus Christ went from death to life so that you and I can be brought from death to life. It's all about God's amazing grace that has been demonstrated to those who don't deserve it. And while we celebrate God's plan to save humanity, oftentimes we're inclined inclined to do this from afar. We remove ourselves a little bit and we kind of look at the cross. We look at Easter. Maybe some of you in here, you see Easter more from a distance, You feel a little bit disconnected from it. You understand that it is a holiday that is celebrated. You understand that it has significance on the Christian calendar. But for you, maybe even as a Christian, oftentimes you're somewhat distanced from what took place, feeling somewhat detached from the Easter story. But I want to suggest to you this morning that the Easter story is intended to be something that is incredibly personal to every single human being. It is meant not to just be viewed corporately and to be celebrated corporately, but it is meant to be embraced and celebrated individually. This is the story of how God thought not just of humanity, but how he thought of you specifically, of how you were in the heart and mind of God before the world began, of this plan unfolding because he saw you, because he loved you. Is the Easter story personal for you? Can you see in it God's great grace for you? God shows us just how personal it is in Acts chapter 8. And I love this story. It's the story of God making himself known to one man. One man that he seeks after. One man that he pursues. One man that he grabs a hold of. One man that he opens the eyes of. In Acts chapter 8, we have Philip approaching an Ethiopian along a desert road, a road that is in the wilderness, it's hot, it's lonely, and there is an unexpected encounter there, not just with another human being, but with the divine creator of the universe. And in this, we see how personal Easter really is, and I want you to see this morning first that God cares about you. The message of Easter is that God cares deeply about you, that God loves you so deeply. Beginning in Acts chapter 8, we pick up at verse 26, follow along with me in the first few verses. It says, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south God often accomplishes his sovereign work through human instruments. But certain instruments are of greater usefulness than others. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.20. He says, Now in a great house, speaking of the family of God, God's house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, Some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel fit for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Philip is a man who is useful in God's hands. He is a man who is ready for every good work. He is in many ways for us a picture of what it means to be a faithful Christian, a Christian who God sees fit to use for effective service in his house. One of the things we know about Philip is that God had prepared him for this role. Philip is spoken of in Acts chapter 6 as one of the godly men who are selected to give care to the widows in the church. He is selected because of his faith, and he is selected because of his maturity, because of his love for the Lord. And I would say to you that one of the things Philip models for us is this, when we walk closely with God, we can be used mightily by God. Philip is a man who walks with God. The metaphor of walking describes the Christian life. It's an ever-increasing journey with which we are growing in our love of God, in our knowledge of God, and thereby our usefulness to God. Our walk with God ought to be like Philip's, characterized by intimacy and fellowship and deep communion. We know enough about Philip to get a sense for his character. There's not much said about Philip, but we know that he is a man who walked with God. He was mature. He was committed to Christ, and he strove to honor him in all things. As a result, I would suggest to you that God cares about your willingness. You see, when you walk with God, God begins to cultivate in you a deeper willingness to be used by God, and I love what we see in Philip. Here he is. He had just finished ministering to the Samaritans. I mean, he'd been preaching to crowds. Think about this, the contrast here. He'd been preaching to crowds and multitudes of people are getting saved and baptized. And then God says, now, Philip, I want you to leave this place where you're really popular and where your message is being embraced. And I want to send you out into isolation to go after one man. And Philip doesn't go, well, God, I mean, this is a really fruitful ministry here. Are you sure it's the right time? There's no argument. There's no pushback. What he does is he willingly says, God, I will go wherever you call me to go. I will go and speak to whoever you put in my path. It's such a sweet picture of what a Christian ought to be before his God. God, let your will direct my paths. Philip's declaration is, God, I'm not in charge of my life, you are. There's no hesitation. There is, I want you to see the connection here. Because of his intimate walk with Christ, there is a deep and rich sensitivity to the Spirit of God in his life. The Spirit of God is moving in his heart and however God spoke to him through the power of the Spirit, what we see here is a man who listens. We see here, too, that God cares about our witness, and so there's a willingness there, but we see, I love the words here, did you catch them? And he rose, verse 27 says, and went, and in verse 30, just look at the first few words there, so Philip ran to him, I mean, here he is, rising and going and following the Spirit of God, wherever he calls, and he runs after what the Lord has for him. I love this because Philip is a man who reminds us that we are a people on mission, that God saves us to use us to be a witness to Jesus Christ. God cares. Listen, if you're a Christian, God cares about your walk. He cares about your willingness, and he cares deeply about your witness for him in this world. You are saved to go out and tell the world that there is a God who is not dead but alive, and you can find life in him. But the main character in this story, apart from Philip, is this man. We don't know his name. We only know where he's from. We only know his disposition towards God. He is an Ethiopian eunuch, and he serves in an incredibly high position in his country. He serves as a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And look at this, he was given great privilege and stature. He was in charge of all her treasure. That is not a small job. This man would have been traveling with a massive entourage. He was somebody incredibly important. But what we see here is that there is a deep longing in his soul. With all of the climbing the ranks, with all of the prestige, with all of the money and possessions surely he had, listen, there was still a profound emptiness in his soul. There was a seeking in his heart for something more. He knew he was created for more. He knew there must be a reason for his existence. He knew there must be a God out there that designed him to know him. He's on his way back from Jerusalem. It says that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Somewhere in this man's life, he had been exposed to the Jewish faith and he had found that there was certainly something appealing to him. He had made this long pilgrimage to go and worship God. But you see, there's a problem. He's an Ethiopian eunuch and according to the Old Testament, anybody who is a eunuch is somebody who has limited access to God. The law forbids him from finding full access to God. He's a Gentile, so he can only go into the outer courts of the Gentile. He can't make his way into the inner sanctuary of the temple. And he's a eunuch, so he is forbidden from actually worshiping in fullness in the temple. But I want you to see what's so profound here. God saw this man's seeking heart. And God promises to bless the heart that seeks after him. In Jeremiah 29, verse 13, he says, If you seek me, you will find me. When you seek me with your whole heart, And I want you to see in this text, there's a massive contrast. In Acts chapter 8, the first part, we have a man who did not seek God with his whole heart, who sought him superficially, Simon the magician. He wanted to use God and he wanted to use the blessings of God without the intimacy and relationship with God. But here is a man who is genuinely seeking God, seeking truth, and God will see fit to answer this man. It is a beautiful thing. God sees you like he saw this Ethiopian. He sees this man's circumstances. He sees the limitations that are on him. And yet he sees a deep longing in his heart. He sees you. He sees the circumstances of your life. He sees the suffering and the trials. He sees the pains and the joys. He sees the things that you love and the things that you hate. He sees the obstacles in your life. He sees the things that are preventing you from coming to him and he knows them deeply. He knows more than anything the emptiness and the longing of your heart because he's the one who put it there. He knows that you will try and fill your heart with all kinds of other things, that you'll try to find pleasure and joy and meaning and purpose in all kinds of other things and he knows that they will turn up empty because he designed you that way. He designed you to know that though you may seek it in other places, the fulfillment and the longing of your heart can only be found in Him. And so not only does He care about you and see you, but He seeks you. In fact, He was seeking you long before you ever sought Him. God has been working in this man's heart. Already up to this point, exposing him to the Jewish faith, he has a copy of the scrolls. He's reading from the scriptures, something that was rare to possess your own copy of the scriptures in that day. God had been working behind the scenes in this man's life, I'm sure, through all kinds of circumstances and providence, right up to the point of this meeting with Philip. What's brought you here today? All the circumstances in your life? The people that God has put in your path, the family that you're from, the relationships that you have, the pain, the trials, the questioning, all of these things, the circumstances, the coincidences, the conversations. It's no accident. It's no accident. And that for you this morning should give you great joy that God sees you and that God has been seeking you. There is no accident. It is no accident that you are here this morning. And maybe God has been working all along in your life, preparing your heart for this very moment like he has for this Ethiopian because, listen, listen, because he cares for you. He is not so removed from you in his creation that he does not lovingly care for you. God's initiative in this story is unquestionable from the angel at the beginning to the Holy Spirit working in Philip to Philip's usefulness by God and running up to this man. It's time for this man to have a personal encounter with the God of this universe through Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what God wants for you and for me. Secondly, notice this that God came for you. God came for you. I love the way the story unfolds. It's, It's so incredible the way that God has designed this situation. So, Philip in verse 30 ran to him and he heard him reading Isaiah. What a coincidence! the prophet, and asked, (laughs) I got to love Philip, right? He runs up beside this entourage, and this guy's so immersed in reading the scroll, he just doesn't even notice that Philip's there until Philip says, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Isaiah 53, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Philip runs alongside this man as he's making his way home in the desert. He hears him reading from the scroll out loud, a common practice in the ancient world and he is reading from Isaiah, the prophet, and this exchange is so remarkable. I mean, I look at this, and don't you, and you're like, does it always happen like this? Does evangelism always happen like this? I wish, I wish. It's like God's just throwing him a a softball, and he's just gotta take a swing and swing for the fences. Clearly, there's something to be said about being in the right place at the right time, right? But who's to say this doesn't happen more often than we realize? Who's to say that God doesn't have you placed exactly where He wants you to be more often than you realize we just have to open our eyes to see it? Who's to say that God doesn't have you in the family that you're in for a reason? Who's to say that God doesn't have you in the neighborhood that you're living in for a reason? Who's to say that God doesn't have you in that job, in that workplace, in the community around those people? Maybe, maybe God has placed you exactly where He wants you to be. And let's take some notes from Philip here. You notice what he does in this situation? Some of you are like, well, what what, what do you do when you you encounter somebody you want to share Jesus Christ? Just take a note from Philip, ask a question. It's so simple, and it's so incredible. How many doors are opened by a simple question? He runs up beside him, and he says, hey, do you understand what you were reading? I mean, how how many doors could be opened up with a simple question? Hey, um, do you believe in God? Hey, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Are you religious? Hey, have you ever been to church? He doesn't just leave asking questions, though. It's an incredible exchange here. The man, in his humility, says, how can I? He invites Philip in, and all of a sudden, here's Philip sitting with the queen's treasurer, Right, in his chariot, explaining to him the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the heart of this conversation. He begins to unfold the beauty and majesty of the scriptures. The man just happens to be reading Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. And we looked at Isaiah chapter 53 on Good Friday. It is the pinnacle of Old Testament texts about the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. I mean, of all the text you could read to find out what the Messiah would look like, what he must do and accomplish, this is the one. And God had worked in such a way to have this man right here, right at this time, reading these two verses out loud. But there's some confusion as he reads it. And he asks, who's this this prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or about someone else? Contemporary Jewish thought was divided on the interpretation of this passage. Some thought it's, it was Isaiah speaking of himself, some thought that it was uh, the nation of Israel, and some thought that it was the coming Messiah. And Philip knows the answer. Verse 35 tells us the beginning with this text. As Philip opened his mouth, he told him the good news about Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, as we saw on Friday, speaks of Jesus Christ, and specifically it speaks about his death. And we were reminded that Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. There is deep allusions there to the Jewish system, the sacrificial system where a lamb, a pure spotless lamb, would be taken into the temple and slain for the sin of the individual. Atonement must be made for sins and this would happen year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennia after millennia, until the one whom this text spoke of came to fulfill it completely. All those little sheep And those lambs that were silently slaughtered all pointed to one final lamb, Jesus Christ, the pure and spotless one who would hang on a cross on the Friday, who would pay for the sins of the world and would do it once and for all. He explains to him that this text is speaking about Jesus He surely talked to him about the humiliation that Jesus suffered, that he was crucified, that he had a mock trial, that they hailed him mockingly as a king when he was the true king of the universe. Certainly he spoke to him about the Friday that Jesus Christ was crucified but we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it did not stay there, that he quickly talked to him about the reality that this Messiah was no longer dead, but instead he was alive. Sunday came, they went to the empty tomb. Can you imagine him telling the eunuch, can you imagine him sharing with him the good news? They thought he was dead, but how can our Messiah, how can our Savior be dead? That doesn't work. What a wimpy, pathetic Messiah. No, guess what? They came to the tomb, they rolled the stone away, they looked inside and he wasn't there. But angels were there and they said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Our savior conquered sin and death. He utterly destroyed it and guess what? All the hope that we have been waiting for throughout all of the Old Testament from the beginning of time, our sin that plunged us into separation with God, our sin that damns us to an eternity of hell apart from him, it's all been taken care of because our savior came for us. And I I wonder, it's so incredible, when you read Isaiah, Isaiah is explaining that there is only one hope for humanity. It is only found in the suffering servant. I I can't help, I mean, we don't know. It says that he went to other scriptures and explained Jesus. I mean, he's taking him through the Old Testament. He's showing him Jesus. But I, I can't help but think that Just a couple chapters over, just unrolling the scroll a little bit more, he pointed him to Isaiah 56, and just listen to this. He says, let not, just listen, listen, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I can't help but think that Philip would have said, look, there's hope for you. You who are not able to gain access to God because of your physical conditions and limitations. Listen, God has ripped down every single barrier that would prevent you from coming into a perfect relationship with him. He has destroyed them all, and he invites you in, and he has something special prepared for you. How it is with every single sinner He explained to him, did you catch that? The good news of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Sunday is for us, isn't it? It is good news. It is the greatest news. There is no better news than the reality that Jesus Christ is alive. The sin that separates us from God has been dealt with in full. A Savior has come to rescue us. Those who are far off can be brought near. There is hope for the hopeless. There is joy for the downcast. There is freedom for the captives. There is life for the dead. It is good news because God came for you. I want you just to insert your name right there. God came for Ian God came for John, Joe, Nora, Sarah, Emily, Frank. You just thank God. God came for you. There is in this passage such a sweet and relentless pursuit of sinners. And as God comes for you, here's what you need to see finally. God is calling you. It's one thing to know. Listen, it's one thing to know that you're a sinner. It's one thing to know that you must be saved by God's grace. It's a whole nother thing to respond to that truth and to embrace the reality that God is knocking on your door. He is seeking you, and he is asking you to open that door right now to him. The Ethiopian eunuch heard the call of God upon his heart through the mouth of Philip and the power of the Holy Spirit. The scriptures unfolded to him. He saw Jesus Christ, the one who is dead and now alive. And verse 36 says, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, "See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized?" This man knew that God was calling him, and he couldn't escape it. In fact, he was so prepared by God for this moment, he knew that this was what his heart ached to understand. For the first time ever, he understood how it was possible for a sinful human being to be reconciled to a holy God. God loved him and was calling him into his family. And the response is so immediate, it is so definitive, it is so beautiful and powerful. He says, look, there's some water right there. What's to prevent me from being baptized right now? This very moment, he would have had a concept of baptism from his Jewish kind of belief, a baptism of repentance, a knowing that there needed to be a preparation of the heart. But somewhere in the conversation, Philip must have explained to him the significance of baptism and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He must have explained it so intimately. They they were so intertwined. The picture of baptism reflecting the picture of salvation that he knew instantly beyond the shadow of a doubt that he must make this decision known. He must act now. Baptism, the New Testament tells us, is a, a sign. It's a symbolic act. And it reminds us of the forgiveness of God. The water does depict the washing away of our sins, the cleansing that can be brought only because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ that washes us white as snow. It depicts the reality of death and life going under the water, dying to our old self, that sinful self, that the person who followed the desires of the flesh, the person who wanted to be king of their own life, plunged into the death of Christ who died our death for us, raised in the water to newness of life, out of the tomb, bursting forth in light and life. It is such an incredible picture of the new life that's found only in Jesus Christ. His death becomes our death. His life becomes our life. We live now in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. It depicts what he certainly ached for, full inclusion into the family of God. You're baptized and you're made one with Christ. You are not a nobody. You are not second to anyone. You are made alive in Christ, adopted into his family as his son and daughter. This man, no wonder he wanted to respond right away. No wonder it tells us his heart was so filled with joy that he rejoiced. He had just been given new life. Listen, and some of you in here, you have been longing and aching, You haven't known why and you haven't known the answer but now in this moment you like the Ethiopian eunuch can know the answer that this God loves you, he cares for you and he came for you. And you can hear his call to you right now and you can be like this man, this Ethiopian eunuch and you can respond right here, right now and say Lord, you are my savior and my master. Philip is snatched away by the Spirit of God supernaturally. Isn't that amazing? I mean, certainly this man and his entourage realized that the true and living God had made himself known in this moment. Philip is there, and instantly he's gone. And did you notice where he goes? He's taken away to another city because his job's not done. He goes on preaching the gospel. I love that about Philip. He just like he can't stop talking about. It. He just sees someone saved and God was gracious to use him and he goes on to the next place and he starts telling them about Jesus Christ. And he lands in this place called Caesarea and if you know anything about Caesarea, you know this, it is a port city. It is right on the water, and you have to think, this is strategic on the part of Philip and the part of God. He goes to the most strategic location he can think of where people are flooding in from all over the world and will go back out to their homes all over the world, and he sets up shop right there so he can proclaim Christ so that every person from every tribe and tongue can hear the good news of Jesus Christ. God is calling on us. To be like Philip, to anticipate that God will work in power. I love that about Philip. I think he was so filled with faith, so filled with anticipation. God, you will work, you will save people. And he's calling us to advance the gospel. He's calling us to know him intimately and to make him known. This is the consuming passion of Philip's life, and this is to be the consuming passion of our lives to make the good news of Jesus Christ known. If you look with me at verse 37, there's something interesting there. You having any trouble? It's not there. If you drop down in your notes, many of you will have verse 37 placed at the bottom. It's been removed, and that's uh, for a reason, because that verse does not appear in the best and earliest manuscripts. To um, the best of our knowledge, what scholars believe is that somewhere down the line, some well-meaning scribe who is copying, uh, making copies of the, the Bible inserted this, and this is very early in the life of the church, inserted this verse to make clear that this Ethiopian eunuch believed in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Here's what verse 37 reads in some later manuscripts, it said, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Scholars believe that this is a very early confession of early, of Christian believers that this would have been common at their baptism very early in the life of the church and this tradition has been passed on. That those who stand in the waters of baptism stand there and say, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Son of God. His heart had been so radically impacted by the good news of the gospel that he believed with all his heart. God is calling some of you to have that same response today. He's calling some of you to put your trust in Jesus Christ and he's calling some of you to make a public stand. Jesus Christ said that if you do not confess my father before others, my father will not confess you before them. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You don't earn it? You can't do anything for it. It is a free gift that is held out to you. He did it all for you. The question is, will you repent and believe? In front of the entire entourage, this man declared. I love that. He's so bold. He's in a position of power and he doesn't care. All of his servants, he wants them to see. I want you to know that this is my new master and I will follow him. And so he looks over and he sees the water and he says, I want to go and declare my faith in Jesus Christ. I want that outward symbol to testify to the inward reality of my heart. I have been cleansed and forgiven. I was dead and now I'm alive. I am united with Jesus Christ. No wonder when he came out of the water, he went on rejoicing.